Thank you, Brendan. Well, Tark, well, um, he's up in Wangarei this morning. Should be there soon. Left about 20 past seven. Um, and he will be back tonight for the service tonight. Right. I'm looking this morning at the story of the unworthy or the unprofitable servant. Now, a pastor was preaching away, and he said, I read somewhere that when men help around the house, they expect some kind of recognition. Now, did he really have to read that in a book? (laughs) Anyway, he continues. So when we're finished vacuuming or folding the clothes or with some other chore, we want our wives to see what we've done and tell us how good it is. Now, okay, guys are an easy target here, but if we're honest, this is a typical human characteristic right across the board. We all love to jump up and down and draw attention to what we've done because we all crave for praise, gratitude, recognition, accolades, kudos, whatever, for our contributions. And let's not forget how important this is for other people because we do crave it. But for ourselves, to some extent, we've got to try and let it go because the Bible says we're servants. And a lot of the things that we think we should be applauded for simply come down to doing our duty. Not that fantastic in the end. In Luke 17, um, 7 to 10, Jesus said, And which of you, having a servant ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable or unworthy servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Well, that's a bleak little job profile, isn't it? We're not going to find a lot of people lining up for that one, but actually it's talking about us. Serving is not an option, it's our duty. So I just want to have a look and sort out what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying, and then go on and look at some of the attributes of a servant. First of all, this parable is about us how we see ourselves as unworthy servants, our attitude. When Jesus started this story, he asked the question, and which of you, having a servant ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat? Now that's a rhetorical question. Now don't worry about that. Just, that just means that there's only one answer and everyone knows what it is. Back in Bible times, there were no union rules about what slaves could or couldn't do. No rights, no privileges. They were completely at the beck and call and even at the disposal of their master. They belonged to the master. Would the master thank the servant or care about his needs? That was real easy. No, of course not. 
He wouldn't dream of it. That was his slave. And we're to see ourselves in this light. And there are going to be days when we have to see ourselves of being unworthy of getting that 15-minute coffee break or knocking off at a set time, unworthy of taking care of our own needs, of even thinking about getting any thanks or affirmation for the hard work that we've done. And I think mothers with babies and toddlers or grandmothers who are taking up the slack are miles ahead of the rest of us here because they already tick all the boxes. The master doesn't owe the servant or the slave anything. The truth is that he's not owed, he's owned. And so are we. We are slaves of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. But here we have to say it's not all bad news because this parable is not about how God sees us. It's about us, not him. We are unworthy servants, but that doesn't mean that we're of no value to God. We've just read that we were bought at a price. That price was the blood, the life of Jesus, God's son, and that speaks volumes about our value to him. Thirdly, the master in the story doesn't show us what God is like. So let's not get the picture that God is some kind of harsh or cruel slave driver or taskmaster. Nothing could be further from the truth. And just one verse that brings that out is Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God doesn't expect us to work ourselves to death or to burn out serving him. But what we do see is that as his servants, we're to be fully committed 24-7. Of course, that takes into account that as full-time ministers... Our service includes all of our daily tasks. When we go to work, we serve our boss and our co-workers and anyone that we deal with through the day. When we get home, we still serve our family or whoever we live with. When we go to church, we serve at church. So that means that whatever we're doing at any time of the day, we're not serving our boss, we're not working for man, we're working for God. And that's a good thing. God is a good boss. Fourthly, the story only tells us how we should view our service to God, but how God views our service for him is another story. So I'll just run through that again. The good news is that this parable is not about how God sees us. It doesn't show us what God is like. It doesn't tell us how God sees our service for him. It doesn't tell us anything about how we should treat other people. It is just about us, how we should see ourselves, our attitude in relation to God 
and the way that we should serve him. And the attitude we should have is an attitude of humility and faithfulness and obedience. And we can do that because he has been so good to us. To get the context of what Jesus was talking about in this parable, we actually need to back up a few verses. In Luke 17, verses 1 to 6, Jesus gives some serious teaching about offences. And he says that we've got to be very careful not to be stumbling blocks that other people might trip up over and that you know, we might cause other people to sin by whatever we're doing. Secondly, he talks about the importance of forgiveness and especially that real hard-to-forgive scenario of someone who sins against us over and over. That's hard to forgive. Sometimes they might do it lots of times in the same day. And he's talking about this to the apostles, and they're struggling. They can see that this is beyond most human ability. It's going to take supernatural grace and faith. And so they ask Jesus for more. Luke 17 and verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Fill up our faith tanks, they plead, or we are going to fail. Well, Jesus didn't say, good call, guys. Instead, he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Like, in other words, you can do anything. But then he launches into the story of the unprofitable servant. And that wasn't what the disciples wanted to hear. Now, Jesus is not saying that we don't need faith. Faith is absolutely vital to the Christian life. Without faith, we can't please God. Without faith, we can't do anything. We can't even be saved. So he's not undermining the need for faith. But at this point, he sees it rather a greater quantity or a greater amount of faith. They need a different quality of faith. They need faith that is outworked in the faithfulness and humble obedience of an unworthy servant. Well, what kind of faith is that? It's the kind that you grow from a seed. And we'll get on to that a little further on. But first of all, we'll go back and look at the obedience and submission of a servant. Because isn't that the key quality that you'd look for in a servant? Like if I had a servant or if you had a servant, we would want them to do whatever we told them to do. We'd want them to obey us. There was a little boy who wanted to look like Mr. Universe. He wanted to have those big muscles. But when he looked in the mirror, of course, he didn't see those big bulging biceps and those rippling muscles, and he thought, I'm going to pray for muscles. And so every day he prayed and he prayed for muscles, and he did that for months, and he looked in the mirror every morning, but he didn't see the answer to his prayer. And of course we know why, don't we? Because you don't pray for muscles, you work out. (laughs) You get some weights and you know, all the things that you do with weights. I don't do, so I don't know how to do it. But he doesn't need to pray. He needs to exercise. And as he exercises 
and uses the little muscles that he's got after a while, as he does that consistently, those muscles will gradually begin to get bigger. And it's the same with our faith. When we exercise our faith, it will begin to grow. So how do we exercise our faith? Well, by our actions, and we will see it growing. And the way we exercise it is obedience. That's the action, obedience to God's word, obedience to any specific instructions that he gives us, you know, by tithing, praying, devotional life, praying for the sick, doing whatever he asks us to do, forgiving people who sin against us, praying for our enemies, being upright and honest in everything that we do and all that. God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son, which is just unthinkable. But Abraham was doing it. He was doing it, and it was only at the very last minute that God intervened and saved Isaac's life. And Paul tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. That's the kind of faith that he had, but his faith was only proven or seen as he did what God asked him to do or began to do it. And in the same way, our obedience is the evidence of our faith. The life of faith is a life of obedience, and the life of obedience is a life of faith. They go hand in hand. God requires total obedience. That's our part in the servant-master relationship that we have with him, and that is how we demonstrate our trust, our faith, our faithfulness, and even our humility, which are all attributes of a servant. And back in the 60s, there was a group of missionaries that were basically kicked out of the country where they were serving, but actually they didn't go. They escaped with some national friends high up into the Himalayas where people had never lived. And they found this hidden valley and they planted the little bit of corn and rice that they had left. And then they prayed for a good harvest because their lives depended on it. And as the crops began to grow and mature, caterpillars appeared. And it looked like those caterpillars would destroy their crops. One man's rice crop was just eaten up, just reduced to stubble. So it was a real worry. It was actually a desperate situation. They needed a miracle. And so they really prayed and prayed. And then they felt that God was directing them to form this group made up of one person from each family, and this group was to go from field to field singing and praying for God to deliver them from these pests. Now you think, well, what was the point of that? But you see, they obeyed God and they did it. And then they waited and continued to pray. Well, two days after they'd done that, they thought there were not quite so many caterpillars as there had been before. After the third day, there wasn't one caterpillar in sight and their crops were saved and they survived. Now the point is that while they just prayed, and I'm not saying anything about praying because obedience was required here, but when they just prayed, nothing was particularly happening. But when they acted in obedience to what, God, what they felt God was asking, the miracle happened because that showed their faith in God.
Now, moving on, it takes humility to serve God and it takes humility to obey and to submit to God's will. And I guess we all have our own views on what are the very worst sins. But according to the Bible, pride is right up there. It actually seems to be number one on God's hit list. And we can only have the attitude of an unworthy servant if we really make an effort to put on humility. And if we don't, we're just going to find it so hard to serve other people without getting recognition or reward here and now. We're going to find it really hard to give our resources and not get that appreciation that we want to. Like, that kind of humility goes against the grain for most human beings. I mean, yes, we will serve when our service is appreciated, and we will give when people appreciate it. But otherwise, it's really, really hard. You know, if we want to check on how we're doing as a servant, just take an honest look the next time someone treats us like a servant. How do we react? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. So it just helps to keep in mind how Jesus served us, what he did for us. And when we look at what he did, we have more of a chance of being able to handle being treated like an unworthy servant. But humility is so important because that's going to help us to be good servants and it will rescue us from the peril of pride. Now, unfortunately, one of the dangers of faithfully serving God for a long time is that then we can fall into the trap of thinking that we're doing a good job. And that was a real problem or an issue with the Pharisees. They were proud of what they did and they felt like surely God owed them. And we see the same thing with the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Now, as I mentioned before, God doesn't owe us. He owns us. Pride is a real problem, and it's one reason why great faith can be dangerous if it's not handled properly. If the disciples had that faith and it increased so that they had no trouble avoiding and forgiving offences, and they could do amazing miracles, then they might also be puffed up with pride, and Jesus was warning against that. Now, I guess we've all heard of cases or known about people with great faith who become prominent because, you know, they're doing miracles and things like that. Not everybody. Some people handle it just fine. But some people who lack the character to walk humbly with God have fallen into sin, you know, sexual sin, running off with the money, alcoholism, whatever. And it's almost like the power of God without the um, godly character to handle it makes people feel kind of invincible and they're led astray. The disciples wanted faith to do these impossible things, but what if they got it? What if we get it? Then we might be vulnerable to that collateral damage caused by pride that can come with an increase of faith that will enable us to do great things. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will see great things. But don't take any credit for those great things because they're works of God. And at best, you're just unworthy servants just doing your duty. The disciples wanted that great faith for a good cause. 
But Jesus showed them that first they needed the unworthy servant's obedience and faithfulness to develop the quality of character that they needed to handle the faith without falling into the deadly peril of pride. Now this story was Jesus' response, as we've seen, to the disciples' request for more faith. He didn't give it to them. He said, no, you don't need me to give you faith as a gift. You need the kind of faith that you grow yourself from a seed. And he said if they had as much faith as a tiny little mustard seed, they could do anything. Now the nature of a seed, as we know, however small, is that it contains life. And a seed of faith, like any kind of seed, no matter how small, has got the potential to grow into something big. Now apparently in Italy there's a famous tomb that has got this massive block of granite on top of it. The unbelieving man who is, was buried underneath of this, um, in this tomb arranged for this huge rock to be placed over the top of his body because he said if there ever was going to be a resurrection, he was going to make sure that he was not a part of it. So they buried his body in the grave and they put this big slab of granite that weighed many, many tons on top. But just before the granite was put in place, a passing bird or something must have dropped an acorn on the grave. And in time, that acorn grew into an oak tree. And now that huge big block of granite is split right through the middle with an oak tree growing up through it. The acorn had life in it, and the life grew and eventually split tons of granite. Jesus said the disciples' faith should be like a tiny mustard seed which had life in it. You see, the life principle is more powerful than any other force, and given the right conditions, that seed is capable of growing and producing amazing results. Now, the right conditions, and we see in this story that we're looking at, can be summed up in two words, faithfulness and obedience. And if we're really serious about growing our little mustard seed of faith, then we must always seek to know God's will and to totally act within God's will. Campbell Morgan, um, who was a great Bible scholar, says there are three aspects to a living faith. Conviction about the truth or the facts of God, relationship with God, and total submission or absolute obedience to God's will. Well, it goes without saying that we need to believe in God, but we also need to have a relationship with him. Untold people believe in God. Jesus said even the demons believe, but not all who believe in him have a living relationship or a living faith. But the third ingredient of submission to God's will is like the key issue for us today because this is where faithfulness comes in. Faithfulness in doing our duty. Faithfulness in giving unlimited forgiveness. Like if you think about that, do we really need more faith for that or do we just need to obey and just do it? The servant-master relationship with God strengthens the case for submission and obedience. We're the servants, he's the master. He gives the orders, we obey. 
And in John's gospel, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. I think that's interesting. Jesus calls us friends there, not servants. But the requirements on his friends is exactly the same as it is for unworthy servants. Friends get more inside information, but they still have to obey. The disciples wanted more faith, but Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, in other words, just that little thing but with the life principle inside of it, and faith that seeks only to know God's will, then you can do anything. Jesus himself did that. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. It comes back to relationship, hearing God's voice, trusting him, and being fully submitted to him. Now, the unworthy servant's duty includes waiting on God. Luke 17 and verse 8. Would the master not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Other versions say, change your clothes, put on your apron, or gird yourself and wait on me. In other words, get ready. When we've been working out in the field, as it were, and we come into the house to serve the master, we have to prepare ourselves. It's like we've been out working for God as full-time ministers in the marketplace, in the home or in the community. We still have to wait on God. Being involved in ministry doesn't mean we let go of our devotional life. That's a priority. We've got to do that first. Waiting on God speaks of time spent in God's word and in prayer. Changing our clothes and putting our apron on seems like spending time preparing and getting ready to serve the master. These words remind us that we've got to be well prepared, studied up, prayed up, pumped up, practiced up, whatever, to serve. Be that teaching in children's church, taking the life group study, ushering, preaching, serving in the car park, leading the worship, playing in the band or any other area of service. The key is not to be a slacker, but a servant who has done his homework and is prepared for their duty. So we serve God by waiting on him. Now, unlike the master in the parable, God is not unappreciative of our efforts. In fact, he's a kind master who loves to bless his servants with rewards that we don't deserve. And here's just one of a number of verses about this. Matthew 10, verse 42. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Now, some commentators say that it's wrong, unchristian, and selfish to even think about rewards. Now, Tark has told me on a number of occasions, and I'll leave you to work out what those occasions might be, but he has told me that right at the back of the road code, there's a sentence in an Indian language which says, if you're of Indian descent, none of this applies to you, and you can... <laughs> You can drive however you want. <laughs> now, if God didn't want us to know about rewards, 
you would think that he might have had something like that in the last page of the Bible, wouldn't you? Like some kind of cryptic spiritual language that only the most mature Christians could understand. You know, by the way, all the good you do will be rewarded, but don't tell the others. They can't handle it. But no, it's right there, out in the open, for all of us to see. So God must want us to be encouraged or motivated by knowing that serving him is not unprofitable and it's not meaningless to us. Now one of the benefits about rewards is that it helps us to wait and to be patient or to restrain that inner child part of us that likes to jump up and down and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. We all know about that, especially if you've got, you know, three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And, you know, that self-control works for us when it comes to eternal rewards. Matthew 6 and verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Which is better, to have all these people saying, wow, have you heard that guy praying? You know, what a spiritual giant. He's awesome. And then that's it. Or to have no one really knowing much about our prayer life, but meanwhile we wait patiently for heavenly rewards which are out of this world and which last for all eternity. Being armed with the truth of eternal rewards can help us to have the self-control to put off looking for that temporary buzz here and now and to patiently wait for a much better deal up ahead. Now some of you know that I don't like shopping. I hate shopping. So from time to time I buy clothes from Easy Buy, which is a catalogue, and it's not actually as easy as you'd like to think. <laughs> but I have discovered that they sometimes seem to have special discounts on weekends. So if I'm ever going to order anything, I do my ordering on the weekends. So there's a tip for those of you who do easy buy. And so far it's paid off. It really has. Because I love bargains. We all love bargains, don't we? Well, the Bible is way better than any easy buy catalogue. There are some great bargains you know, free salvation. There is no, no other place in the whole world where you ever get anything like free salvation. That's the best. But taking the attitude of an unworthy servant is way better than it sounds at face value. It's actually one of those deals where you get two for the price of one with a prize thrown in. The deal is we embrace the unworthy servant role, humility, obedience, faithfulness, and all that. And firstly, we get grow your own faith from seed, and there's no limit to how big that can end up. Secondly, we get the parallel, grow your own character that will enable us to handle the faith without being destroyed by pride. And in the end, we get eternal rewards for what we've done when really God's done it. So how good is that? Serving God is the best deal that we're ever going to get. Thank you.